Um, hello, everyone. I thought I'd go for this one because I'm not good at looking down, so we'll see how we go with this. Um, but yeah, so we're going to look at Acts chapter 4. Um, but before we do, I just wanted to quickly recap what's happened in the story so far. Um, I think it's just quite useful to see the trajectory of what they're talking about and where it's come from and where it's going. Um, so I'm going to back up a little bit to, you probably remember that big key event in the Gospels when Jesus dies. Um, got that at the bottom, you know, a bit of a low point in the story there. Um, so I want to yeah, start from that in our minds. Um, then the next event, well, next key event after that was obviously the resurrection. If I had a bigger screen, I would have put that dot up quite a bit higher. Obviously, there's quite a big difference between a low and a high in there. But we'll run out of space if I do that. Um, so, you know, a pretty amazing event. This guy that was clearly dead and everyone saw he was dead is now alive. That's, you know, pretty amazing. Um, after that, we had various people encountering Jesus after he had risen. Um, we covered a lot of those stories in the previous series. Um, but again, pretty amazing event. This dead guy has resurrected and he's, you know, walking through walls and teaching people scripture and opening their eyes to all these amazing things. So another, you know, big step up. Um, then another event which in some ways feels like a little bit of a dip and a low point, the fact that Jesus has left them, um, but he assures them that it's actually for the best and that he'll be sending his Holy Spirit to be with them. Um, and along with that, um, it's also, you know, Jesus physically ascending up into the sky, which... I mean, it's pretty amazing, right? Not, not an everyday event, so it's, it's a pretty amazing thing to witness. Then after that, things keep getting more and more amazing um, with the story of Pentecost that we saw a few weeks ago. Um, so a very strange event. Um, we see that visible display of God's power and seeing those tongues of fire land on them, you know, sound of a rushing wind and a bunch of ordinary people that are now speaking in languages that they didn't know. You know, that's, again... Pretty amazing, right? Um, and along with that is the revelation that God's presence is no longer found in the temple, but in the hearts of his people, you know, that he's building us into his living temple. Um, and in the big picture of the Bible, that's, that is a massive revelation. That's, again, I need a bigger screen to show how much of a step up that should really be. Um, so these guys are really bold and they're preaching lots and lots of people are coming to believe in Jesus too. Then after that, um, the story that Graham shared a couple of weeks ago about Peter and John healing that man who was lame from birth. So this is a guy who hasn't walked for 40 years, and now he's healed, which is, again, it's a, it's a big deal. Um, and the difference here is uh, we're quite familiar with the healing stories. They, they almost seem normal when you're reading the Gospels and that, but here it wasn't directly Jesus. This is you know, a couple of fishermen that all of a sudden are healing, healing this guy. So that power that Jesus had has been transferred to them. Again, another massive step up in the story. Um, so when you sort of see it mapped out like that, you see the trajectory of, of where it's come from it's wearing, and where it's going. It's really encouraging. You, you, just, you sort of get the feeling like, you know, what's next? You know, how are they going to top that one? It's, it keeps getting better and better and all these amazing things going on. Um, but if you're you know, familiar with the Bible or church history, you know that things don't keep getting better and better and it's not always that easy. Um, and in this chapter, we see the first time that they encounter opposition after this streak of amazing events and seeing God move in amazing ways. So we're looking at the idea that where God moves, there is reaction. Um, yeah, it's not really a surprise to us once we know the story, but if you're reading it for fresh eyes, it's actually a bit of a shock. Like I said, when you're going through those, all those previous events, everything is good and amazing and all this cool stuff's going on. And it's building up and up. 
and then all of a sudden chapter four it sort of hits this roadblock and it's a bit out of the blue you don't really expect it to be happening um, so yeah we'll jump into Acts chapter four and just remember where we've come from so we're starting from this high point you know this guy who was lame from birth who has just been healed and everyone's amazed and then Peter starts talking to the crowd at the temple and paraphrasing here but he says you know remember that guy Jesus who was here not too long ago the guy who did all those amazing healings and miracles the one who claimed to be the Messiah the one who was put to death uh, you might have heard that he was raised from the dead maybe you were even some of the people that met with him after he was resurrected um, it's because of that same Jesus that this man is healed so that was the sermon that he was preaching to the crowd there so after all of that that's the short version uh, we jump into Acts chapter 4 and I know this is a much smaller screen than we're used to. Um, so if you've got a Bible, open that up and read along. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who had heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to be about 5,000. So this is sort of like the scene in the movie where you have that sort of creepy music going and you introduce the bad guys in the movie. Uh, we've got the, the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees who have just interrupted their sermon. And it says there they were, they were greatly disturbed. Why were they disturbed? Um, we'll break that down, but the main one, because they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead, is what it says. So there's a number of reasons why that was disturbing to them. I mean, first of all, they were teaching. So these guys, Peter and John, they're not, they're not like approved or trained in the law the way that the Sadducees or even the Pharisees would, would teach them. They haven't been to the proper schools or had the training through the rabbis. It's, this is some unapproved people speaking the message that, that doesn't line up with what they're used to hearing. The other thing that they were doing is claiming that the leadership was opposing God. So it's not just that they were teaching a different message, but that they were also saying that the leadership killed Jesus and was opposing God's truth. That the leaders were enemies of God. That's a pretty good reason to be disturbed by what they're saying. They were preaching Jesus, and that alone is a big insult. The leadership had killed Jesus. You know, the high priest... The Supreme Court and all of Israel declared Jesus a criminal, a false teacher, and a rebel. Simply mentioning that name and attributing him to those miracles is like saying your leaders are wrong. They are preaching resurrection. And to give you an idea of why that was so disturbing to them, you've got to know a little bit about these guys. Um, the Sadducees, they were like one of the ruling political parties of the time similar to what the Pharisees were that we encountered in the Gospels. Um, they both had different theological and political point of views. Um, but the Sadducees, these guys were, they were friends of Rome. They were connected politically with them. Um, they liked to keep the peace and keep, thing, keep the order so that they could, they could stay in control. As long as Rome was happy and the country was kind of under control, they would be the guys who were in control of the temple. In terms of their belief... Uh, it's quite surprising, but these guys didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in angels or demons or resurrection of the dead. Uh, and that's quite surprising conclusions that they came to when you read the scriptures that they, they still believe in their scriptures. They just don't come to those same conclusions, which is, I find really interesting. 
I don't know how you read that and say I don't think it's talking about an afterlife, but anyway. So they weren't that happy with them preaching about the resurrection of the dead and teaching that there was life after death and or that this guy Jesus had risen from the dead. The other reason that they were greatly disturbed is they were getting a lot of attention. It said the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. And some say that that didn't include women and children. I'm not too sure. But either way, 5,000 is a lot, but it's possibly more than that as well. So, so this event of the healing of the lame man and preaching this sermon at the temple is probably actually worse for the, the leaders of Israel than that time that Jesus flipped over the tables in the temple. Yeah, this is 5,000 people gathered in the temple who have witnessed a miracle and are now hearing teaching that goes against their approved message. That's it's quite a big problem. So yeah, plenty of reasons that the leaders were disturbed about what was going on. As we continue, it says, The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? So you might notice some familiar names in there. Um, Annas and Caiaphas. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing those right, but we'll go with that. Those are the same people that put Jesus on trial and sentenced him to death. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. So this is the same crowd that Peter avoided when Jesus was on trial. When he, he was hanging out at the fire outside and he denied knowing Jesus. And he, he denied knowing Jesus when a servant girl asked him. And here he is, he's really bold. It almost sounds like he's picking a fight and he's getting up in their face. What's the difference? Holy Spirit, here we go. It's a big change, and it shows. I love what, he, what he's saying here and how he sort of flips this around. It, it reminds me a whole lot of sort of the, the way Jesus talked to people who were challenging him. It's, he's kind of like saying, you know, hold up a second. We've been arrested for doing something good to a guy who was lame. He couldn't walk, and now he can. For 40 years of misery, and now he is healed. And you're having to go at us for that. It's kind of like, what's the problem, guys? Uh, but he doesn't just stop with that. He, he turns it around by saying, remember that time you crucified that innocent guy, Jesus? Why, you know, why don't we talk about that? How did we heal this man? By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. It is through the, him that this man is healed. Again, there's a, they're pushing the buttons there. There's a lot to annoy them. Um, by Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We, we're sort of used to that, and we read it pretty, pretty easily. That word Christ means Messiah. And they, they knew exactly what he was talking about. He's saying it was done by Jesus, the Messiah, not just my Messiah, but your Messiah, the one that you have been waiting for, who you crucified. You can kind of imagine him, you know, pointing at the crowd or, you know, singling some out there, perhaps. 
He's saying, you killed your own Messiah. You guys are so far from God that you're not really in any position to judge. He's not just saying that you killed my Peter, my leader, as in Peter's leader, my Lord. He's saying that you killed the one who was promised to redeem Israel and the whole world, including you guys. You've killed your own guy. And he goes on to quote the Old Testament, but not just quote it, he applies it to Jesus. He says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Again, a lot to be disturbed by for the leaders. They're preaching exclusivity there. There's no other name. This is the only way. And he's quoting from Psalm 118 there. Is that us? <laughs> is that a car? Is that a fire alarm? It's just a car? All right, we can ignore that then. That's fine. <laughs> so he's quoting from Psalm 118. And this psalm was recognised as talking about the Messiah who was to come, that he would be rejected by those who should know better. So back during these times and in this part of the world, the way they built buildings was they would cut stone blocks from quarries and then deliver them to the building site. So often the quarry would be quite far away from where you're actually building. Um, So the architects are the ones who had the plan and designed the buildings. They could see the whole picture. And they would tell the guys in the quarry what to cut. I need... 10,000 bricks this size, this shape. And then he would make sure that the builders knew how to place them at the other end. And the cornerstone was often a bit different to the rest of the stones. Um, Sometimes it would be bigger, or sometimes it would have special grooves to help align the next bricks with it. Or sometimes it would have little lines in it to help you align it. It's the first one on the site, so to know you got it in the right place, it might have a little line pointing to the building next door or a, a mountain range in the background. So yeah make sure it's positioned perfectly. Um, So the the picture that's described here is that the builders get this odd-looking stone and they don't quite know what to make of it. We've got our delivery of 5,000 bricks and there's this odd one out. They toss it away, throw it down the hill. The the builders have made a mistake with that one. We'll get rid of it. Um, But what's going to happen when the architect comes along to inspect the building? Where's the cornerstone? Or he might have a what looks like a good building, but it's facing this way and it was meant to face that way, or you know, it's not right. You've got it wrong literally from the first brick. Uh, we've been doing a little bit of a building project at home the last few months, and, and I can relate to this. Um, clearly, me and Becca are not builders, um, but we thought we'd give it a go. And there's one instance we're really proud of ourselves. We had all the frames up and we wrapped it in building paper and thinking we've done a great job. And the inspector comes along and ticking all the boxes, looking good. And you notice that there's a pile of just polystyrene blocks. They look like what you'd get a, a, in packaging, you know, surrounding your fridge or microwave or something like that. It's about this long, little blocks. And he says, oh, he looks a bit closer. And we haven't put them, apparently you have to put them in the corners where you can't actually put insulation from the inside. And the problem is when you put your wrap on, you, you can't get them anymore. So, um, <laughs> yeah, again, ignoring a, what looks like a piece of packaging is actually somewhat important. And you want to do it in the right order. <laughs> so, yeah, you can save a lot of time in tantrums if you pay a bit more attention. Yeah. So when they saw the courage of Peter and John and they realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. 
So you can see that they're astonished. These, these guys aren't trained in the rabbi's ways. They sound, you know, they would have had a different accent. These are fishermen from the north. I don't get it. What, why are these normal guys so good at quoting scripture and tripping us up? And they sort of have that revelation that, ah, they, you know, they were hanging out with Jesus, that, the last guy that we couldn't argue with either. You can see a lot of similarities in how they talk. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from happening, from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So they don't believe in Jesus, and they don't believe in a resurrection, and they don't believe in miracles. Can you see the problem? (laughs) It happened. And they don't deny that it happened. And they don't deny that everyone knew it happened. What shall we do? It was the same situation when Lazarus was raised from the dead. It says that some people went to the chief priests and said, what shall we do? Again, we have a problem. That thing that we know doesn't happen, it, it just happened. What shall we do? And I can, you know, my initial response might be, you know, praise God, um, be, be thankful, maybe find out a bit more why this has happened. Um, but the answer back then is pretty similar to now. No, let's plot to kill him and shut this down. Really? <laughs> and so yeah, here with Peter and John, it's a similar situation. The lame man being healed in the name of Jesus was a problem. The people knew Jesus was a healer, or at least that's the stories they heard if they didn't meet him in person. And if they didn't personally see him in his resurrected state, they would have heard the stories. And this healing gives more weight to the claim that Jesus is alive and that he has passed his power onto those who follow him. What shall we do? So the whole city knows, and we can't deny it, what can we do about this problem? And there's no law about no healing. You know, it's not illegal. You don't need a law if it's not meant to be possible. You don't need to make it illegal. So they, they weren't in any position to really do anything about it. Um, what shall we do? Um, again, perhaps repent. That could be a, a good option. But as we know, that didn't happen. Um, we can't kill them. We've got too many followers, but we can't let them keep doing this. Um, it's interesting that there's not really a big like, technical argument recorded there. Um, sometimes when we're sharing our faith with, with others, we go for the logical argument to try and present a case for why this is how it is. Here they've done something different. It's a testimony. It's a testimony from someone that everyone knew. Here's it that beggar that you've walked past for the last 40 years. And this is another example of how the greatest argument and the power of Jesus is a changed life. Is a crippled man who is now walking. I mean, people love arguing why Christianity is wrong, but it's really difficult to argue testimonies like this, uh, or from people who say, you know, this was me before Jesus, and this is me now. The idea of once I was blind, but now I see. When friends or family see a change in you, they want to know what caused that, and that could be a powerful thing. So they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. 
As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So they threaten them a bit so that it won't, won't keep spreading through the people and tell them, don't, don't speak anymore, don't do this anymore. And their reply here is they, they compare this courtroom that they're standing in to the courtroom of heaven, where God is the judge. And they're saying, you know, who should I be more afraid of? Who should I listen to? What's right to do? And again, this is another response that reminds me so much of how Jesus would reply to people when he'd sort of trap them into the only response they can give is either agreeing with him or shutting up. You know, when he's saying what's right to listen to God or listen to you, they're not going to say, don't listen to God, listen to me. They can't say that. So again, they have to keep quiet. So after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For a man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So again, it seems to me that the obvious response would be go and join the people and praise God. But never mind. They threaten them some more and let them go. So I think there's some good lessons here in what to do when we're treated poorly for sharing our faith. It says, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they had heard this, they, what do you reckon, went home sulking and decided never to speak about Jesus again? We're encouraged. We're encouraged. What was that over there? Prayed. Prayed. Mm. Nah, I can complain on Facebook. (laughs) When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. They said, Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord, and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So they prayed. They're not pacifists. They don't just roll over and you know, be quiet and, and behave themselves. They're active. They respond intentionally. And, and I really like this prayer, how it starts. It starts with Sovereign Lord. They're saying, God, you are in control. You made everything. God, you are the creator. You are powerful. You can do anything. Then after that, they go into reminding themselves that by the mouth of your servant David, you wrote that the nations will rage and will plot in vain and that they band together against the Lord. And then they, they not just quote this scripture, but they, they realise it is true, that they saw that fulfilled. They said, and that did happen, that everyone plotted against Jesus, the one that you sent, and that this happened to Jesus just like you said it would happen. So they're framing God in truth. They're saying, God, you're in control of everything. And it doesn't surprise you when the world rejected Jesus, and this doesn't surprise you either. Um, this is something that I, I definitely need to do more of. I, I don't know about you guys, but when I go to God in prayer, you know, I'll come to him saying, oh God, I've got this, this headache, and it's really bad and tricky, and you know, can you? I, I know it's a lot to ask, but the reality is for the God who created everything, it, it's pretty easy to change a headache or you know, 
basically anything we list will be easy compared to what he has done. And that's not a trick to say that if we do it in this way, it will definitely happen. But we shouldn't put our limitations on God. Can anyone else do that? See, I really like how these guys start that prayer because it just reminds them who it is that they're talking to. That God is all-powerful and that he's in control. So after the start of that prayer, they say, now Lord, here's, here's the, the request in the prayer, now Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they pray for boldness to enable them to keep speaking God's word and keep healing and performing signs and wonders. They're praying for the exact thing they got in trouble for, right? They don't pray for it to stop. They don't pray for the guys to change their mind or to disappear or, you know, have an accident, things like that. They just say, Lord, we know this is right. We know this is your will. Let it keep happening. And they're able to ask for that boldness to keep doing what they know is right because they know, because of what they know to be true of God. You know, they're encouraged by those reminders that God is in control and that God's word is fulfilled and he, he's not surprised by things that happen. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So, so the building's shaking. Um, and I, I don't really want to explain what's going on there. I don't know, it's strange. Um, but the, again, there's a miraculous sign, a visible sign of, of something happening. That's pretty cool. So I'm sure they were very encouraged, even despite the experience would naturally be discouraging. So it's a lot of quite important lessons in this one chapter, I think. Um, first of all, that, that we should embrace and expect criticism and adversity when you do good. Um, sometimes God works by opening doors and makes things easy, but, but not always. Sometimes the very thing God asks us to do means persisting through closed door after closed door, or sometimes getting us to kick it down. If you live a godly life, you will be persecuted. In our country, maybe we won't be killed or arrested, and I'm very thankful about that. Um, that's definitely not true for many believers in other parts of the world. And sometimes, sometimes Christians say and do things that are not acting in love and truth and bring trouble on themselves. So this isn't meant to be you know, like a, a secret to defend yourself and all your actions. Uh, you know, so-and-so is being mean to me for being a Christian. Might be true, but he might be mean, mean to you because you're an egg or you were rude to him. You, know? <laughs> you, you don't always have the backing that because you're a Christian, you're always in the right. Um, and I think, yeah, a lot of what I read on the news or watch when I see Christians in news reports, so cringe. sort of cringe a bit. Yeah, so it's not a, not a defence that's always there for us regardless of what we do. It's when we're working with the Spirit and, and doing his work. Another lesson here is that these guys submit to the authorities, even when they get it wrong. They submit, you know, they get arrested, and they don't fight or kill them or do anything like that. Um, they could have said, sorry, and we won't do it again. Um, you know, sorry, we didn't have a permit to teach, and we'll just go somewhere else and talk to our friends. And they didn't do anything like that, but they still did submit to them. But more importantly than, than submitting to the authorities and keeping the peace is that they submitted to God. So when there was that conflict between 
what their authorities were telling them to do and what God was telling them to do. That was where they drew the line. So they ignored the instructions to stop speaking of Jesus. And why is that, why is that so important? Why, why did they find that worth, worth standing up for? Yeah, definitely with the Holy Spirit that gives them the boldness to it. But the, the mission behind why they, why they find that they have to say this, why are they risking everything to say this message and why not just you know, shut up and submit and leave and go to your beach house or whatever? Yeah. But the message they're preaching is that salvation is available through no one else. Okay. If this message doesn't get spoken to the crowd, if they're not speaking the name of Jesus, there's, there's no plan B, there's no other option. This is the salvation that was promised to everyone from the beginning of time, including the leaders who are rejecting it. It's what was promised to them. They might have been expecting or waiting for something else to come later, but this is it. If these guys keep quiet, they've got nothing else to offer. If, if they don't risk it and keep preaching, no one else will ever have anything else to offer. People need to hear this. Yeah, another important lesson is to see those who persecute you as loved by God and understanding that even through persecution, when we're facing opposition, God may be opening up a door of opportunity. This, this story that we read today was actually a pretty crazy situation. You know, who would have thought that two fishermen from the countryside up north would get an audience of the 70 most powerful people in Israel of the time? Like, that, that can't be orchestrated. Can you imagine them like, sending out invitations to the you know, Bible study? You know? I'm not trained, but come, come listen to me talk about the Bible. This, no one's going to respond to that. By submitting to persecution they got access to a captive audience to preach the gospel to. And they were listening. They were, they were listening to every single word waiting for them to trip up. They were paying attention to what they were saying. Um, and we don't know if they got through to anyone, uh, but Jesus was in a similar situation on his trial, and it's quite likely that that might have been what convinced Joseph of Arimathea to believe in him, or at least moved him to compassion, and when he felt moved to bury Jesus' body. Maybe this courtroom with Peter and John didn't get through to anyone. Maybe it did. Uh, but we know that in many other occasions, these guys did have really effective prison ministries, which we'll read more about in the later chapters. We are called to make the most of persecution and seeing every situation as an opportunity to share the gospel. Um, I, I heard a story that's an example of this. Um, there was a, was a Malaysian university professor. His name was Dr. Living Lee. And he, he was in the audience at an event where someone was criticising Christianity, and, you know, as they do. And at the end, he got up and sort of challenged him on, on a couple of things. And rather than arguing with him, the speaker just thought he'd make, make it a bit easy. He said, to save some time, let me just illustrate this for you. And he asked the professor, give me your coat. So kind of sort of bit and gave him his coat. And then the next, guy, next question was, he said, now give me your pants. Um, and he, the professor was really shocked, um, and he thought about it for a moment. In his response, he turned to his students, turned to the crowd and apologised. He said, sorry for what's about to happen. He gave his pants to the speaker, then left the auditorium in his underwear. He returned to his office, weeping and shocked, but believing he did the right thing. Apparently, he had a flood of students and colleagues visit him 
to apologise for what had happened to him. So that guy chose to submit to persecution, to confrontation, rather than fighting or arguing. And he was a, I can't remember what his title was at the university, but he sounded like a smart guy. I'm sure he could have put forward a really good argument. But the result from submitting and not arguing and demonstrating was actually that more people were moved by his action and he got, got an audience to chat with more people one-on-one than yeah, would have been far more effective than probably any argument that anyone could have put forward. But that we are to pray and be reminded of who God is. Just as the disciples started their prayer, they reminded themselves that God is in control and that he is powerful and that persecution and hard times are not a surprise to him. And last of all, possibly most important, is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter and John, they, they weren't moving in their own strength. They didn't have any you know, tricks, they no backup. All they had was the Holy Spirit. And we can see that difference between Peter's first experience with that crowd when he denied Jesus and ran away when he was confronted. And I know people have different views on this, and if you disagree, that's all good. Um, but Ephesians 1.13 says, When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. You know, we, we receive the Holy Spirit when we believe. The Holy Spirit is always with us. Graham talked about how we are the new temple and how God's presence dwells in us. And and that's absolutely true. But I think we can also ask for more of the Holy Spirit. That we can still ask the Holy Spirit to fill us each day or at specific points when we need help. Peter and John were already sealed with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Um, But it's really interesting, and you'll pay attention as we go through the readings of the rest of the book of Acts, um, that in this chapter it it reiterated twice that Peter and John, filled with the Holy Spirit, said this. Um, And then again at the end of the book, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and encouraged. It it seems a weird thing to specify if at Pentecost they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Why would you be telling us time and time again? Um, To me that points to the idea that we can continue to be filled more with the Holy Spirit and it also points to the idea that we can work in opposition to the Holy Spirit that we can do things that are disagreeing with the leading of the Spirit and yeah and it's really important to keep reminding ourselves to be spirit led and praying daily for that because I don't know about you guys but my natural responses would often be quite different to what these guys did so yeah, I'm looking forward to next week where we can get together and chat more about everyone's experience with, with this and facing difficult times and looking forward to encouraging each other when things aren't always easy. Um, but for now, I will pass on to Dan and Janelle to lead us in the next song and yeah, to remind ourselves who our God is and to be encouraged that he's in control no matter how bad things look.